The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. From Capitol Hill to the White House, the Courthouse to the State House, the FTC to the State Attorney General. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business foreign and domestic. And have your questions answered by our group of legal experts. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, this is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown sunny Santa Monica, California, um, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. Um, thanks to Mommy Book Fair, we're continuing our series, and we're talking with James Miller. He's the author of Can Democracy Work? A Short History of a Radical Idea from Ancient Times, Athens, excuse me, from Ancient Athens to Our World. Um, James, thank you for joining us. It's good to have you. Um, Pleasure to be here. So what led to you writing this book? Um, the book grew out of a, uh, um, a trip that I took to Europe. This was four years ago, I would say. And uh, it was summer, and I was on my way to uh, teach for a three-week stint in Bratislav, Poland, uh, where uh, a colleague has uh, set up a democracy institute that has been running since 1991, um, a couple of years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and was initially meant to um, uh, cater to students in East and Central Europe who were learning the ropes of how to run constitutional democracies in, the, in that moment of democratization. Uh, I began the trip by flying to Prague, where I had a former student, and I'd never been to the Czech Republic. And it was a very depressing time in Prague, uh, a far cry from the picture of um, hopefulness that I'd always gotten from reading Václav Havel as an author. Um, but things got worse when um, we crossed the border um, and took a bus up to Poland because the country was facing a huge uh, nationalist uh, revolt in which uh, far-right um, uh, political uh, parties and actors were coming together around a nativist exclusionary agenda uh, that um, had many um, illiberal features, and uh, these were uh, unwelcome uh, to all of the people I was with who were veterans of solidarity and the halcyon days of democratization in Poland um, a generation earlier. Uh, from there, um, I took a train to Dresden um, and found something similar going on in Dresden, that there was this newly minted um, nativist uh, dissident party that had formed, uh, Pegida, uh, under the slogan, We the People, which had been, in fact, the slogan of dissident um, um, anti-communist Democrats uh, in 1989-1990. And the same exact slogan, We the People, had been appropriated by this nativist party. Um, ended up that trip in Copenhagen, which had just um, elected a right-wing uh, conservative government that was going to try to shut down immigration. And I came back feeling as if, wow, this feels like what I've read Weimar was like in 1933. Uh, in the case of Dresden, there was literally street fighting going on um, weekly. Uh, the following well, year, while I you were went, there, well, uh, the following year I went back and I taught for two weeks in Dresden, and I would say half the students who were in my class were street fighters on the left. They were saw themselves as fighting the fascists, and it was almost like jousting in a certain sense. The police would be in the middle, and it had become completely routinized by then. Uh, and uh, so that got my attention. 
uh, and then my attention was really gotten by the um, one-two punch of Brexit. I spent a lot of time in England and have many friends in England, and uh, the arrival of <clears throat> Donald Trump is a serious, viable, and eventually victorious candidate for president of the United States. So the the book had been sketched out before Trump really became a factor, but um, once that was happening, um, that was the context in which the book was written. It was written actually pretty quickly, in part because these are things I've thought about for 40 years and uh, have written about before, and it's a book I've I, I, I thought about writing when I was much younger, but I was too young to be able to, to write it. So that's the origin of the book. Now, um, the book basically attempts, there are certain notions when we talk about democracy today that uh, are, are coupled together. We often refer to as liberal democracies or democracy. When we say the word democracy, we assume it's imbued with certain features that we associate today with Western democracies. And I, what, what your book tries to do is is explain kind of the history of democracy and that a lot of what we consider the democracy today is or have other elements grafted onto it. Um, yes, that's correct. I, I think in America we have a specific uh, difficulty uh, which is that uh, certainly I was raised uh, to uh, I, to believe, I was taught over and over again that we live in the world's greatest democracy, it's the world's first modern democracy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and that's simply not true. It's not a democracy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and how, given that it's demonstrably not true, how the United States, nevertheless, how Americans came to see themselves as quintessentially democratic is one of the stories I have to tell in the book, which I do in a third chapter. Uh, but the the big um, um, thing that has to be pointed out is often democracy is conflated with liberalism. Uh, and, uh, you know, the term then becomes liberal democracy. Right. And that's a feasible form of democracy. And, and at the end of the day, I think it's a preferable form of democracy. But uh, ancient Greek democracy had nothing to do with any recognizable definition of liberalism I'm aware of. Uh, liberalism itself as a political term is really a modern um, invention dating back to the um, aftermath of the French Revolution in Europe and only in the 20th century migrating to the United States uh, whereas democracy is a very ancient term obviously it goes all the way back to um, ancient Greece uh, so there's a story to be told about how these two different um, uh, political traditions that start out as alternatives and rivals, in fact, um, end up uh, being uh, merged in the 20th century, um, notably in the United States. Uh, it's a, a contingent, uh, fragile uh, synthesis. Uh, and uh, there's nothing that's inevitable about its uh, emergence or triumph. Uh, and I think uh, there was a period after the fall of the Soviet Union when a lot of people fell into a kind of complacency, thinking that with the disappearance um, virtually of communism as a serious rival, uh, liberal democracy was it. It was the end of history, as uh, right. Francis Fukuyama put it. So, uh, and uh, that's just not the case, and it's pretty obviously not the case today. And so, do you think democracy is in peril today? I think liberal democracy is in deep trouble. Um, ironically. Um, democracy as it has emerged as a modern ideology I think is in really good shape uh, it is an almost universally avowed norm um, and it's um, the the leaders of Poland and Hungary um, of Putin in Russia claims he's upholding what he calls a sovereign democracy there was a kind of solemn statement of this a decade ago uh, the Constitution of North Korea calls itself a democratic people's republic I could multiply the examples but uh, well it must it, be if Dennis Rodman goes there uh, that's it <laughs> he's the ultimate democrat um, but uh you know there's another 
a question that my book tries to address, which is how does it come to pass that you do have these multiple forms of modern democracy and the language is all over um, communist uh, regimes that grow out of the 19th century socialist movement. And that's for a simple reason, that socialist parties in the 19th century were much more keenly uh, um, uh, in favor of dem- democracy than liberal uh, uh political parties were. So uh, the, the, in, in Europe, the, the main movement uh, towards democracy is associated with socialism. This is in sharp distinction to the United States, where um, uh, the key figure who sort of crystallizes democracy as a positive term is Andrew Jackson, who uh, is a plebiscitory president, um, a uh, unapologetic white supremacist, uh, you know, a practitioner of America's form of ethnic cleansing in terms of the trail of tears of the Indians and so on and so forth. So in the United States, you get um, almost at the same time this kind of Jacksonian political party form of democracy, uh, which has uh, an appeal to the common man understood to start with in fairly narrow terms. And Concurrently, you have a literary uh, kind of fantasy form of democracy associated, uh, I think, above all with the poet Walt Whitman in the 19th century. So you get a characteristically American form of 19th century democracy that itself has absolutely nothing to do with the socialist forms that were rapidly evolving in Europe. When you say the socialist form, you're referring to more um, worker democracy efforts. Well, I'm thinking of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, which by the in, by the, in the period by 1912 it was the biggest political party in Germany. Uh, it didn't have a majority, but it was the big, biggest single political party. Uh, the Socialist Party of France. Uh, these parties were big tent parties. They involved uh, almost, almost all of them were associated with labor unions. The Labor Party in England is another example. Uh, the kind of uh, uh, policy views they had were uh, views that would come to be associated in the 20th century with um, the so-called welfare state. Uh, these are parties that fought hard for uh, workers' safety, the right to unionize, and uh, unemployment benefits, social security, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, they they need to be sharply separated from, um, you know, the kind of communist, authoritarian, dictatorial forms of socialism that uh, particularly triumphed in Russia um, and after the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, one thing when we talk about democracy in the United States is that it, it we, one, first of all, we're a republic. And yeah. it's it's not, we don't have direct democracy. And, um, and so, and if... And when we were founded, you know, not everyone could vote. You know, just you know, certain classes of people could vote, and that that has been expanded over time. And um, you you tell an interesting story that's actually quite close to home. Um, I grew up not far from where the the culmination of the Door Rebellion took place in Providence, Rhode Island, and um, <laughs> I actually um, the uh, the armory that was under siege. Uh, was where I had my high school gym class, excuse me, my uh, middle school gym class, and I actually had a summer job there two years um, while I was in college. I worked there. Um, and um, and what strikes me about the whole Door Rebellion, and just I'll give some background, you know, maybe, why don't you, um, for listeners, explain what exactly, in a nutshell, the Door Rebellion well, it's an odd episode, uh, and um, in a way, I would prefer for you to explain. Sure, I'll be happy to. about it. To. Go ahead, because you're a native. Um, and and so, with Rhode Island itself is always in, in a, con- a series of contradictions, and um, and so the, when Rhode Island was founded, it was one of the most progressive col- colonies in in terms of its charter. And it was the the most um, the first to be based on you know freedom of religion. You can choose practice whatever religion you wanted, and um, um, even more than that, it was the first constitution in America to call itself a democracy. Um, it's the first appearance of that word in a modern constitution. Believe it or not, but carry on. And, and so it, yes, and so it's it's constitution it's charter from the king. Um, was its constitution, and that became its constitution in in 
after the revolution and uh, and continuing. And so the problem was, unlike other states, it had not updated its constitution. And so the right to vote was limited to, to landowners. And right. you had immigrants coming into the state and you know, people, workers, and they, they weren't able to vote. And there was this movement to allow people to vote and um, give people the franchise. And so Dorr led this kind of popular revolt where he held a people's convention, constitutional convention. They approved the constitution. Obviously, not <laughs> extra <laughs> judicially. It wasn't through the 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 the, the chosen assembly and the chosen governor. Even elected their own governor, and uh, and was able to get a few cannons and march down the sh- march down from one end of the province to the other to this you know armory, which is this giant um, castle-like building. And it had actually some cannons that were seized from uh, the Revolutionary War that it fired. And, uh, of course, they, since they hadn't been used since the Revolutionary War, <laughs> they, 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 they didn't fire at all. And, and so that was it. But the, the, I bring up Doors Rebellion for a couple of reasons. One is, here you had a movement um, to people saying, wait a minute, we, we're, we're not democratic enough. You know, we're, we're only having landowners to vote. So they said, okay, let's become democratic. And then they said, and and, and the debate was, okay, let's, let's let everyone vote. And then, then someone said, no, 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 let's not get that democratic. We don't want black people voting. And, right. and, and so it, it, it's always, you know, democracy is almost like that, the old debate, um, Senator Long about taxes. You know, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax the guy behind the tree, except the inverse. You know, democracy. See, democracy for you, democracy for me, but not not for him. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And well, you know, to go back to where um, you began, uh, it's quite true that the United States is founded deliberately as a republic, not a democracy. And this is a distinction that James Madison harps on famously in the Federalist Papers. Uh, but I think most Americans really are unaware of how thorough. Um, and uh, profound the attempt was to make the uh, the United States from the outset not a democracy. Um, the term I find most uh, appealing to describe what they were aiming at is one that John Adams used. They were aiming at a natural aristocracy. They wanted to create a kind of meritocracy that wouldn't be dynastic or inbred, uh, um, unlike uh, those in the old world. And uh, But they definitely wanted the best and the brightest uh, to uh, assume positions of leadership and power. And they thought these would be the people best equipped to um, uh, work towards a commonwealth and achieve the common good and instituted and wise policies. So the whole Constitution is jury-rigged um, to try to uh, produce this outcome. So you have the spectacularly undemocratic Democratic Senate, um, invented on the model of a House of Lords that wouldn't actually have Lords. Uh, so uh, it, it basically destroys any idea that it's one man, one vote in America. Right. And that's true to this day. So, you know, you've got that. You've got the Electoral College, which is, um, is, is so weird and such a Rube Goldberg contraption that no constitution in the world ever has tried to um, um, recreate it. It's crazy. Uh, and we still have it. Uh, you have the Supreme Court, which people often um, forget that in um, you know democracies like ancient Athens, the judiciary was uh, it was staffed up by ordinary citizens. It was uh, uh, it, they were chosen by lot. They served in juries of five hundred or a thousand. And uh, but in America, the whole justice system is you know you have these people who serve for life that are at several removes from any uh, direct popular uh, uh, election. So, uh, uh, and as you pointed out, the right to vote was very limited. Um, And uh, one of the odd things about the United States, when one looks at its history with a gimlet eye, is that, as far as I can tell, at no time in its history has uh, the United States uh, had a franchise that was universally available to everyone. Uh, there's always been exclusions, whether it's uh, uh, women, slaves, felons, uh, you name it. And uh, the other thing that's odd is that um, 
in, in, in some other countries which take the franchise, the right to vote, as absolutely central to their conception of what makes um, um, a, a regime democratic, uh, in order to ensure that it has a democratic quality, they make voting obligatory, as in Australia and so right. South American countries. Well, I can't imagine this happening in the United States. This would be like, gee, don't tread on me. And most people I know complain about being forced to do jury duty. Um, But uh, there's something kind of rich about people claiming um, having these big fights over um, uh, um, the right to vote. And uh, when this is sort of the be all and end all of how Americans generally think they're so democratic. Now, now, on that point, one of the things that I think has been not clearly covered in the press, or it, it's a, it, there's a major shift that has happened politically that this hasn't got the attention that I think it deserves, and and that goes back to the um, Shelby County decision of the Supreme Court to overturn the Voting Rights Act enforcement provision, and and thereby um, which. Under the Voting Rights Act, prior to Shelby County, uh, the Justice Department could, um, for certain states that had histories of voting rights violations, the Justice Department could uh, had had to approve any major change in their voting procedures, and so it could preemptively block anything that mm-hmm. would have a negative impact on, on voting voting turnout. Um, Post Shelby County, that 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 has been neutered. And so now the remedy is to sue after the fact. And, of course, you know, that means you're litigating right up to the time of the election, as we have right in the, um, going on now. You know, we have right. this, this case decided in Supreme Court side up in North Dakota. We have uh, litigation in, in Georgia going on right now. And um, so it completely reversed that trend. And then we've seen an explosion of voter suppression laws. And what, what's yep. striking is that, and granted, there is a little time lag, the um, the Voting Rights Act amendments under President George W. Bush, not H.W., but George W. Bush, mm-hmm. you know, were passed almost unanimously. And uh, yep. I think it was no votes in opposition to the Senate and like six votes in opposition in the House or something like that. Yep. And, and after Shelby County, where it just said that you Congress can do this, but it needs to make a clearer record of the need for it. And and frankly, I think the record was there. I think this was you know judicial legislation by Roberts and Alito. Um, and one of the sponsors of the Voting Rights Act amendments, um, the Senator Sensen, excuse me, uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, introduced a bill right away. And said, "Okay, let's do it." And he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And there was never a hearing held on the bill. <laughs> and two years, okay, end of Congress ends, next two years come back, he introduces again, nothing. And so there's been, at one point, there was something that everyone agreed upon. And then yeah. all of a sudden, now is, you know, we can't even agree on that. Well, it's very striking, and uh, but it also has to do with, um, uh, in a certain sense, this is such an old story, um, because as a historian, uh, looking at the struggles over the right to vote, I mean, the ebb and flow, uh, the expansion of the suffrage, the contraction of the suffrage, it, it, it has been ever thus. So uh, in that sense, uh, the one advantage, I think, of looking at things in a long historical perspective is that things that seem shocking, um, then they just fit into a larger pattern of a problem we have in the United States. But the question of how you, uh, how you move uh, from the point we're at, uh, because what it's done is it's created a structural uh, situation in the country where uh, an actual majority is thwarted, and in order for an actual majority to exercise majority powers, it's got to be, what, 57% of the vote, probably, um, on average, to actually um, win power uh, at a federal level. 
uh, in uh, both houses right, of Congress it's, it's to do German, something yes. about it. You know, it's uh, that's just the, it, it is what it is, and that's those are the rules of the game. And uh, you know, we've taken many steps backward, uh, and I emphatically agree with what you've just uh, said in terms of your evaluation of that Supreme Court decision. But uh, you know, we've been down this path before, and I think. Uh, you know, the, the challenge for people who care about democracy as well as liberalism in the United States, I mean small d democracy, not, you know, partisan Democratic Party, capital D, but, you know, you have to fight. Uh, you can't just sit on your butt and assume it's all going to work out. It won't. Well, one thing we have to fight for is a, a word from our sponsors. So we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> You're listening to Cypher Law and Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. TopSEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let TopSEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with James Miller. He's the author of Can Democracy Work? A Short History of a Radical Idea from Ancient Athens to Our World. And um, James is a professor of politics and liberal studies at the New School for Social Research. And he's also the author of the critically acclaimed Examine Lives from Socrates to Nietzsche and as well as Flowers in the Flowers in the Dustbin, The Rise of Rock and Roll, and Democracy in the Streets from Port Huron to the Siege of Chicago. And um, we're going to be rocking and rolling ourselves. Um, <laughs> we, we were talking about democracy and voter participation just before the break about this um the Shelby County decision, which I just still find so disturbing. But um, going back, it, it, the, the contradictions of voter, you know, who has access to the ballot and, and our outward review of democracy has, um, has, had, has a long history. And we just, we just recently did a segment uh, and for the, uh, Centennial of war, end of World War One, and in looking at uh, World War One in this whole Wilsonian, uh, you know, the 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 fight to make the world safe for democracy, at the very same time, Wilson had to was initially fighting with uh, suffragettes, and uh, and ultimately had to give in to them uh, in order to gain support for his war effort. Yep. 
So, um, who were you talking to for that segment about uh, Will? Oh, we had someone from the World War One Museum on. I uh, see. The... No, there are many uh, paradoxes, I think, in, uh, you know, in the case of Wilson. And uh, at this point, all of his uh, personal papers have been um, uh, collected and published. So you can actually see um, a lot about his private thinking um, and some of his preparatory thinking for what would become eventually uh, a public um, uh, lectures and books. And uh, he's a characteristically paradoxical American figure. Uh, he's a Southerner, and he has a very earnest, uh, 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 idealistic, expansive view of democracy, superficially, but then when you pay closer attention to it, he um, keeps whittling it down, so it ends up being mainly about public opinion, expressions of public opinion, and he sees uh, the main vessel for expressing democracy in America to be uh, public opinion taking the form of votes, uh, particularly for the President of the United States, because he's the one official that all Americans vote for. So you have the most powerful single figure in the federal system who becomes a, an avatar of democracy in Wilson's interpretation. Uh, but I think even more disturbing is his uh, deeply held view that democracy is an evolutionary outcome of uh, a process that has uh, racial uh, components to it uh, such that Teutonic people are more capable of self-government than other races and it's their providential mission to teach other races how to become self-governing so this frankly white supremacist conception of democracy gets put into uh, practice in the United States when he's elected president he notoriously uh, 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 purges the uh, civil service of um, Negro yes. Uh, employees. He, in the League of Nations Charter, he notoriously is perfectly happy to let France and England uh, keep their empires on the understanding that it's the white man's burden to educate the colored races around the world. And uh, the other peculiar feature of Wilson's vision of democracy, which uh, I discovered in writing the book, is he he declares um, at the, in his manuscripts that democracy, modern democracy, has nothing to do with what happened in Europe or the French Revolution. It's an astonishing statement. Uh, but he says the reason is that these, uh, what happened in Europe involved conflict and revolution. And um, in America, we've had just this very harmonious unfolding of the uh, ideal of self-rule. And, and he says this as if we never had a civil war. Uh, there was never any problem with Indian removals and what to do with indigenous peoples. It's just astonishing. But it, you see it in contemporary discussion. Sometimes Republicans to this day will say, oh, this is class conflict, as if all conflict is bad, <laughs> which is, I mean, if you're attacking us, shouldn't we be defending ourselves? It's a strange motif in American politics, I think. And I think it, it obviously, I think it predates Wilson. We, we had, <coughs> excuse me, we had um, last year, I believe it was, we had Stephen Kinzer. On, and he had his um, his latest book was uh, the True Flag: Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, and the Birth of the right. American Empire. And he was talking about the Spanish-American War. And if you may remember, there was this uh, McKinley view that we needed to go out there and Christianize them. Well, I mean, they yep. were already Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's Christianity and Christianity, you know. There's Catholicism and then there's Protestantism. And uh, Wilson is pretty clearly on the Protestant side of this divide. Anyway. It, it just it just it strikes me as well. But Wilson, it is almost um, you know, a messianic view of democracy. Correct. And, you know, we saw it again. I mean, when I was working on my book, uh, Condoleezza Rice published her book uh, entitled simply Democracy. And uh, she is an absolutely 
paradigmatic, perfect embodiment of that kind of messianic Wilsonian uh, vision of uh, of what America should be in the world. And, um, you know, it played out in uh, W. Bush's foreign policy. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, I mean, uh, democracy uh, in practice, as it as it's institutionalized and attempts are made to export it, sometimes at gunpoint, it's not always a pretty picture, uh, and it's worth recalling that too. And and you know, Condoleezza Rice talking about contradictions. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But uh, <laughs> so. Um, we we're seeing we've seen what appears to be a lot of outbursts of democracy that and on one level with arab spring yeah and um and one level at first seemed very promising and then ultimately collapsed yeah. and why why do you think that is well i think that in in these um episodes of what um i refer to as democratic revolts um, they all happen under at different times and different places under um, unique circumstances, uh, politically, economically, socially, and so uh, it would be uh, a long and perhaps not a an interesting conversation to go through events starting in 2011 and why did this fail? Why did that fail? Uh, there were uh, besides uh, the uh, Tahrir Square uprising in Egypt. There were obviously other uprisings in the Arab world. Tunisia. Two years later, there yeah. was the Maidan uprising in Ukraine, which um, has had, um, um, in, on, in some accounting, you would say, has been somewhat more successful. Uh, other revolts, like the Umbrella Revolt in Hong Kong, were um, uh, peremptorily crushed. Right. Uh, and Yet, you know, the history of these revolts is sometimes they're crushed and then a seed is planted that um, bears fruit um, a generation later. So uh, the question of what is success and failure, um, it, it partially depends on the time frame that you apply. But one of the things I think you see is that in these kinds of uprisings and revolts, um, they often happen in an urban setting. Um, the town square is not coincidentally uh, a featured uh, component, um, as it was in Tiananmen Square in China in 1989. Uh, but because they're urban events, they involve de facto a minority of people demanding uh, greater rights for an entire population. And one of the recurrent paradoxes of democratic revolts in, in, in the modern setting is that um, it sometimes turns out that um, it's really only a minority of ardent Democrats in urban settings who really are willing to fight and die for democratic institutions. Uh, that uh, was the case in the French Revolution in 1792-93. The vast majority of the country were pious Catholic peasants. Once they had gotten some land, they didn't care about um, self-government in the way that the artisans in Paris did. And that puts Democrats in um, an impossible difficult situation because they are claiming to represent the wishes of um, a majority of an entire people and demonstrably um, they are doing no such thing what do you do then uh, well even in, in our, our own revolution wasn't is, is, is it the famous is Sam Adams quote that yeah. a third before a third were against and a third were indifferent uh, yeah, that's you know that sounds about right for any revolution, but the challenge then is in those moments of uh, um, um, high tension um, uh, social change, convulsive social change. How do you uh, marshal uh, popular support? And it turns out, lo and behold, and a big variable is who has guns and who is the military. Right. So, uh, you know, in Egypt, uh, that was the insurmountable obstacle. And to 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 have Arab Spring succeed, um, the the rebels in they really had no choice but to form an alliance with the military. Uh, but once they'd done that, they were um, in many ways. Um, in the th beholden to that right. very same military, riding and, the tiger, uh, right? And uh, then they had the further problem that when they actually had um, 
a pretty democratic election. It turned out that a majority of ordinary Egyptians actually wanted uh, the Muslim Brotherhood to be in power, uh, which isn't at all what the um, uh, the democratic rebels, uh, who were many of them cosmopolitan, uh, enlightened, middle-class intellectuals, had wanted when they swarmed into Tahrir Square. So you end up with a very sad spectacle of a pseudo-democratic revolt being supported by the middle class in which the military um, essentially stages a coup under cover of a democratic revolt to put uh, um, the current supreme leader in power, uh, arguably under worse, uh, more tyrannical conditions than his predecessor. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, it's not could a pretty picture. Could that have been predicted with Iran as an example as well? I don't think politics is predictable. I'm you know, I don't think history is predictable. So I think there are way too <laughs> my, many my variables. My friends might argue with you. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's me. Uh, so I just think there there's so many accidents and contingencies uh, that um, really determine the path that these events um, hurtle down. So, uh, you know, it... it I didn't think it was a great strategy at the time in uh, 2011 in Cairo, just as a bystander, that you would be in bed with the military. But um, on the other hand, uh, as I say, I don't think I don't think you would have got past square one without that. Yeah, and 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 history has shown a lot of democratic, successful democratic revolutions have occurred because of Democrats, you know, small d in the military. Including yeah. our own, you know, you, you go to Annapolis, and there's the uh, the, the the there's a, a big you know monument to where George Washington turned in his commission, and, yeah. you know, resigned as general to accept office as a civilian, yeah. and and so and whether it's the People's Revolution and and the Philippines, you know, the yellow, excuse me, what was it, the the yellow yeah, revolution, the yellow, yeah, yeah, the yellow revolution in the Philippines, where you know you had the was it Ramos? Or I forget the general who you know who basically you know stepped in and said, "Okay, we're we're standing with Aquino." Um, well, and the same thing is true in the French Revolution because basically um, there was a national guard that was armed to the gills that um, uh, essentially empowered um, ordinary people in Paris to. Uh, uh, to um, have a succession of insurrections. Uh, and uh, a number of the same people made up the citizen army that Napoleon inherited that demonstrated that civil- citizen armies can be more powerful than professional mercenary armies. Um, so, uh, yeah, the right to bear arms and the fight over that in the United States sometimes amuses me. I was think one of my fantasies is a bunch of, you know, black people and left wingers would say, yeah, we want to have a right to bear arms and then see how much they defend it. Well, uh, we, we saw that in California. You know, the very yeah, first well, we gun saw- controls in the nation came when the Black Panthers started arming themselves in California. Exactly. And, I was just going to refer to yeah, that, and it's yeah, sort and of amusing. Showed up in the, and showed up at uh, the assembly. Yeah, exactly. And people freaked out. Uh, so uh, I've only half-jokingly suggested to friends on the left that that's what they need to do. They all need to go get guns. It's frightening to me because I don't know how to fire a gun. And God, you know, <laughs> uh, it's sort of like the Door Rebellion. The trouble with Door is he, he he was lugging around cannons he didn't know how to use. Uh, not a good look. <laughs> well, I, I can't I can't speak to lugging around cannons, but um, <laughs> but yeah, yes, it, it is somewhat of a challenge to to carry uh, a couple of tons of uh, equipment. Um, but we're going to take a, a short break. When we come back. We'll be talking more about can democracy work, and we're going to talk about can democracy work now in the United States. After these messages, you're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on Webmaster Radio FM. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions and workshops presented by the leading brand marketers and experts from around the world. 
covering strategy, storytelling, ROI, demand generation, AI, and more. Leave Cleveland with all the materials you need to build a content marketing plan that will grow your business and inspire your audience. Save $100 off of registration using promo code RADIO100. That's radio and the number 100. Don't miss Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Register now at contentmarketingworld.com. The Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for its 7th Annual International Mobile Web Award Competition. This award program is an opportunity for mobile developers to demonstrate their expertise in this growing medium. It recognizes the individual and team achievements of web professionals all over the world who create and maintain outstanding responsive and mobile websites and mobile applications. Deadline for entry is September 28, 2018. Submit your entry today at www.mobile-webaward.org. That's mobile-webaward.org. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. We can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email brasco at wmr.fm and get your message delivered now. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking with James Miller, and he is a professor at the New School in New York. And uh, why is it called the New School? That always bothered me. <laughs> it, was called, it was founded in 1919 by uh, people who were upset with Columbia University, which the pre- then president of Columbia had been a gung-ho supporter of entry into World War I. And uh, so there were uh, patriotism oaths and such that were required uh, at that time. So uh, Charles Beard, Thorsten Veblen, uh, some other well-known scholars of the day, John Dewey, um, decided there should be um, a new kind of university that would be unencumbered by the traditions of a conventional university. So it started out actually as a non-credit-bearing institution in which ordinary citizens would learn more about their democracy uh, and uh, take courses uh, just for the purpose of general enlightenment. The people who uh, also helped found the institution were also connected with what was then a brand new journal called the New Republic. And uh, it was the same uh, woman uh, uh, who was a a Whitney heiress, Dorothy Strait, who bankrolled uh, both the New Republic and uh, the New School at its foundation. So, uh, you know, both of these institutions really arise at the moment when liberal democracy crystallizes as an actual phrase and rallying cry in American political culture. And the New Republic, as much as any single journal, was associated with that uh, phrase. And uh, it was basically people who had been uh, supporters of Teddy Roosevelt uh, and then supporters of Woodrow Wilson, and they wanted a big administrative state to tame the economy excesses of capitalism, and uh, that state would be their solution to the problems of market society rather than revolution. And so they called themselves um, liberals uh, to distinguish themselves from hack partisans of either the Republican or Democratic Party and also from revolutionary socialists. Interesting. So that's the origin of the New School. I never knew that. I, I, you know, I was always curious. At some point, it's no longer new. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, we're coming up on our centennial, and I, I can tell you, it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> but, but from a historical point of view, that is new. A century, you know, from Americans, you talk to people from Egypt or elsewhere. They're yeah. like, you know, you guys are still young, um, and to us, it doesn't seem that way. And and on that point, um, you know, Americans are. are going through a troubling period right now and I, I think there's concern uh, about the future of our democracy 
and 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 potential rise of um, latent or even actual authoritarianism. Uh, yeah, um, that seems to be the uh, threat. It's pretty and straightforward. And there was a, there was an article. Um, I believe it was in the New York Times. It could have been the L.A. Times Sunday Magazine in the '90s called uh, "American Weimar," and it was <laughs> it was during the Clinton administration, and it was noticing that uh, Republicans were increasingly um, off being authoritarian. And basically, they, they could not accept that Clinton was legitimately elected. That right. after winning with Reagan twice and Bush again, they thought that this. These they they were to con- they were going to control things going forward, and so Clint- Clinton was just an interloper, and uh, you know we once he's gone, then you know, we'll, we'll, things will re- go back to their normal order, and, and then you have the whole Gingrich revolution, and and there was almost um a, as Gingrich launched what he said we had to fight with the ferocity it's seen only in civil wars, that um. The other side wasn't just the an, another partisan. The other side was um, un-American. The other side was a threat, right. and and right. it could not be you know you couldn't compromise with them because they were in essence the enemy. Right. And is, well, is that where we are now? Well, I, I think it's um, it's helpful to point out that people felt this way um, twenty thirty years ago. Uh, because often people at the moment, in the moment, feel like, oh, this has never happened before. But in, in fact, it has happened. Right. Uh, the United States did undergo um, an incredibly bloody civil war. Uh, and I also think that the moralization of conflict is completely typical of American history. And it's one of the things that makes it different from, um, if you know, in recounting the history of the rise of democracy in Europe, people really do fight over class interests. It's a class conflict between uh, uh, burghers and workers in the 19th century. Whereas in the United States, uh, the, uh, the the conflicts are often uh, couched in almost apocalyptic moral terms, uh, often with an overlay of uh, religious symbolism. And by the way, this can be on either the right or left. I mean, John Brown, who's America's yes. you know most famous yes. terrorist, is uh, he's a complete evangelical Bible. Uh, caring um, fanatic and he thinks that God is on his side and uh, that's one reason why he feels completely justified in um, uh, um, uh, murdering innocent people if they're collateral damage in the cause to abolish slavery so uh, the you know what we're seeing now is um, is just the latest turn of the screw uh, and it is um, you know, at the moment we're speaking, I have no idea what the outcome is going to be, uh, because my own view is if the Republicans hold both the House and the Senate, um, we are in deep trouble as a society, uh, politically, in my view. Uh, and uh, I have no idea what, what might happen at, at, at that moment. You know, I, so, a week ago I, I saw um, Doris Kern Goodwin. And yeah. uh, who actually I, I was able to interview from five years ago, um, but this you know she has a new book out about you know democracies in times of, of peril or you know, something like that, and which um, characteristically focuses on heroic leaders by the exactly, way, exactly, very right, American. Don't, don't don't appear to be president at the moment, but um, she she had a somewhat optimistic view driven by two factors: one. She's a historian, and, and two, she's a Red Sox fan. So she knows that you know there there are hard times, but you know good times eventually might happen. And um, she pointed out the caning of Charles Sumner, where uh, a South Carolina congressman uh, Preston Brooks came onto the Senate floor and just caned the Massachusetts right. Senate, you know, almost to yeah. death. And yeah. um, it was such an out and you know such an outrage over it and um, Brooks became a hero in South Carolina and uh, much like Lindsey Graham today and yeah. um, but 
what she pointed out is that what that did was ended up really coalescing um, the anti-slavery movement in the North yeah. and ultimately led to the formation of the Republican Party, which led to the election of Lincoln. Yeah, well, um, you know, it's always possible to put a providential spin on bad news, uh, <laughs> uh, particularly if you can point to um, a, a happy se- sequelae, uh, as as she did in the story she told. And, you know, I could even do that, you know, with uh, the rise of Hitler. Uh, yeah, it was really bad. A lot of people died, but when then we got the UN um, Human Rights Convention, and you know the world's been a better place ever since. I'm, uh, you know, being facetious, obviously. Uh, the trouble is that um, in the short run, a number of people end up dead, and uh, uh, in order to get to a better place, to go back to Kern's example, you know, there had to be a civil war, right. and um, uh, and it was, uh, you know, the first, probably, arguably, the first example of total war in the modern world, mechanized weapons used for the first time, uh, a large swaths of the South laid waste uh, indiscriminately. Um, and, you know, I was just actually down um, in Nashville at a book festival, and the scars of that are, are still present. So, uh, you know, we can look uh, and, and uh, on the bright side and see the, the, the glass half full. Uh, I get it. Uh, and it is true that um, uh, when I first was confronted with the election of Trump, uh, which um, just shocked me as a think it did many people. I was in Norway, and I wrote to my children, a son, three, three sons, a rather overwrought email, but I said, you know, I'm looking on a sunny day over the land of Quisling, and, you know, Norway now is a prosperous, wonderful social democracy, so in the long run, I hope that this is the world you will inherit. But, I mean, I, Norway, uh, was this before 22nd July? Uh, no, this was uh, after. Uh, okay. You know, this, this was after, um, you know, the infamous attack and so forth. It actually had a conservative government, but I meant it. I mean, Norway was terrible in World War II. So, yeah, I do believe I have enough faith um, as a as a, a raised in America, a true blue, small D Democrat, that um, people will work it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, God knows at what cost um, in human suffering and bloodshed. And that's the scary thing about our current moment uh, to me. Uh, it, um, I, I just, uh, the whole, one of the reasons to have representative institutions is to avoid civil wars. So. Right. And it, it, what's, what's disappointing, obviously, you know, the, there's a lot to be said about Trump and uh, um but what is equally disappointing is the other institutions failing. The the whole lack of attempt to hold you know on the Congress to uphold their constitutional obligations, to act as a check and to hold yeah. Trump accountable, yeah. and uh, and then the Supreme Court as well um, has been disappointing too. And uh, it, especially now with, with um, you know uh, Bart Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we live in interesting times, as the Chinese proverb has it. Yes, and it's double-edged. But speaking of interesting, is my understanding that you will be speaking on Sunday, November 18th at 11 a.m. at Miami Book Fair and uh, on the Building 3. And so for those who are going to be in Miami, definitely check this out. Are you speaking on a panel or... um, I'm on a. Um, I'm speaking alongside um, Thomas Frank, and um, I'm going to block on his name. He's a novelist. Oh, uh, Ben Fountain. Yeah, uh, Ben Fountain, uh, who's a, just a hell of a great writer, um, who's written a kind of Jeremiah about our current um, moment. So, um, you know, I'm going to be the uh, uh, sort of the boring academic part of the program, I'm afraid, but I'll do my best. <laughs> I, I, from talking to you so far, I doubt that's the case, but uh, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, for walking us through your book, Um can democracy work? Definitely check it out. We'll have uh, the links to it and how you can buy it on the show notes. 
And um, in addition, if you come out to LA, let us know. Um, okay. I'd like to, if you do a book signing, I'd love to show up. And um, okay. but thank you again. And uh, so that's all we have for this and special Mammy Book Fair edition. Thanks again to Mammy Book Fair for providing Mr. Miller to us. And uh, so um, you can join us next week for another edition of Cyberlaw Business Report right here. Follow us on blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. We have our show notes with details about the author and the book. And um, you can join and also check out the Internet Law Center, internetlawcenter.net. Follow Cyberlaw Business Report on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. And then tune in here next week on webmasterradio.fm. This is Ben and Kelly. Have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.